Welcome to the Something to Gnaw On podcast, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span. And this is the Gnaw Initiative series, where the goal is to give listeners the tools, a mold or a mental operating system to be able to understand the Bible more clearly so that they're equipped to study the Bible for themselves. And if you're a seasoned student of the Bible, well, just look at this as a refresher course. And I'm your host, Nate Vinio. This episode begins our crash course through the Old Testament, but first, a semi-quick story. I used to drive a big old Kenworth cross-country and deliver goods on a flatbed trailer. One of the challenges was what is called trip planning. You often will see videos on social media of semis that are in the craziest places or make the dumbest mistakes. Most often, it's because they've used a GPS, which doesn't always have the routes that are suitable for semi-trucks. Consequently, my company trained us to use an old-fashioned paper map and research truck routes outside of a GPS. One of the craziest loads I had to deliver was some construction material to Penn Station in Midtown Manhattan. Yes, New York City. I was a mess, stressing over all the details. In a post-9-11 world, could I really go through the Lincoln Tunnel? What was I going to face when I got there? Was traffic going to be bad? Where would I park? I even called the New York Port Authority to get verification that it was in fact okay to drive through the Lincoln Tunnel. I got there about 5.30 in the morning, parked where I was told, and began to untarp my load. I had done it. I got where I needed to be without any chaos. The pre-trip planning was a resounding success. Then I got the call. I needed to move to the other side of the building. And while that sounds simple, all the streets in midtown Manhattan are one-way streets. So taking two right turns in this particular situation wasn't possible. I had to go up two streets and over four streets because I couldn't turn on the one that I needed to to begin with. I got distracted by something, got turned around, and the next thing you know, I'm about a mile away, eight-tenths of a mile to be exact, and the next thing you know, I have Times Square about two blocks ahead of me. I know a lot of people who have a desire to get to New York and see Times Square. I have a desire for neither, let alone doing so in a full-size semi. Eventually, I made it back to Penn Station, got delivered, and proceeded to get turned around yet again, trying to get back to the Lincoln Tunnel. I did all the trip planning necessary to get there, and absolutely no planning to get out. It was a huge mistake. Look at this crash course through the Old Testament, like reading a map and doing some pre-trip planning. Do the planning, and you'll end up where you want to be. Failure to read the map? Well, you'll probably wander aimlessly trying to find your way through Scripture. Let's dive into some Old Testament basics. I mentioned in the previous episode that the Bible is 66 books, divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament begins with the birth of Jesus Christ, and as an incredibly broad statement, and to quote the great theologian Jace Robertson from Duck Dynasty, the Old Testament is all about the fact that Jesus is coming. And while I wouldn't necessarily disagree, I think it would be good to add that it's a revelation of who God is, how much He loves us, and how He interacts with His people. So, for today's episode, I'm going to breeze through the first five books of the Old Testament, and to cap it off, I plan on highlighting a thread 
that will hopefully pique your curiosity to get into the Old Testament yourself and show you how there are elements that are woven through the entirety of Scripture and how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Ultimately, the better we understand the Bible, the better we understand what God is trying to say to us. So let's dive into the first section of the Bible. Simply put, the first section is referred to as the law. And if I'm being honest, I don't like this term. Certainly it's foundational, and the law is found in its pages, but it includes rich history and the importance of God's covenant with Abraham. But it's primarily perceived as the law and the covenant that God gave Moses. It begins the revelation of God to mankind. The Hebrew name for this section is the Torah, or literally, the teaching. And the Greek name that you'll hear from time to time is the Pentateuch. Maybe you recognize the prefix penta being Greek for five, like the penta in Pentagon. The Pentateuch is simply five books. This first section, called the Pentateuch, is popularly accepted as having been written by Moses. And ironically, while they are written in Hebrew, the names Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all the Greek names. And remember, don't lose sight of the fact that while these books are considered by many to be the law, there is a ton of history on these pages of the Pentateuch. So much so that I would say that it is the story that carries the law through the pages of the book. The first book is Genesis, which is often referred to as the Book of Beginnings. And racing through the book, it covers creation, original sin, the flood, Abraham and God's covenant with him, Abraham's line, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's sons, who eventually become the twelve tribes of Israel. And Genesis ends with Jacob's son Joseph surviving a terrible ordeal at the hands of his brothers, but rising to the occasion as God uses him to save the family, becoming the practical ruler of Egypt, not a pharaoh, but basically a chief of staff. And thus ends Genesis with the whole family being saved from a famine, but living in Egypt. A quick and interesting observation, for me at least, which may or may not have deep meaning for you, but it shows you that there's a bit of beauty and symmetry to the Bible. It's worth noting that the New Testament begins with five history books, the four Gospels and the Book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. The first words in the Gospel of John mirror the first words in Genesis. Those words are, in the beginning. The Apostle John makes the point in that first chapter that Jesus was there at the creation of the world. Pretty cool, eh? Now that may be a good place for you to dive in this week and do a little more studying. When I wrap it up shortly, we'll come back to Genesis for a quick look at another thread that flows through Scripture into the New Testament. The second book is Exodus, which literally means the road out, and it's primarily historical, in my opinion at least, as it records the Israelites leaving slavery, leaving Egypt, headed towards the Promised Land, and covers their 40 years of wandering in the desert. Just a quick observation that you'll see in other parts of Scripture. Sometimes one book moves seamlessly into another, or a chapter moves seamlessly into another. Other times, much time passes between books or chapters. 
There are about 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. There are also about 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Exodus records many miracles and encounters Moses had with God and the Israelites. The Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. The Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle are established. And towards the end of the book, many laws and regulations begin to be written down. And if you want to take a minute to dig into something here, go to the Gospels and look at Jesus' teaching during the Sermon on the Mount. Granted, there's only eight Beatitudes to compare to the Ten Commandments, but look what Jesus did. Shortly after the Beatitudes, he says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Where the Ten Commandments and the law largely address behavior, Jesus shifts gears and makes it primarily about what goes on in your heart and in your mind, as opposed to the behavior of not stealing or not showing honor or taking the Lord's name in vain or murdering, etc., etc., etc. All of a sudden, Jesus says, thinking hatefully equals murder. He's up the ante on what honors God. The third book is Leviticus, which is primarily a law-related book, and little history is recorded. The majority of the book is devoted to the law, the commandments, and the instructions given to the Levites. And the Levites are the tribe of Levi, of which Moses is a descendant of. Moving into book number four now. The fourth book is Numbers, which is a combination of history and law. It seems to alternate back and forth between the two, actually. Its most notable story would have to be the 12 spies being sent into the Promised Land, and it gives us the most detail on Joshua of any other book. And Joshua is the young man who will take Moses' place, and we'll begin next week talking about him. The fifth book is Deuteronomy. This is, in essence, Moses' swan song, his last will and testament. Finally, the Israelites are about to cross over and take possession of the Promised Land. Moses is nearing his death, and he won't make it into the Promised Land. And with this as a backdrop, his last words to the Israelites are simply to repeat the law back to them. Not only does Moses repeat the law, he does so three times in this book. In fact, the word Deuteronomy means repetition. When people in the New Testament mention the book of the law, these five books are what they're referring to. When Jesus quotes from the book of the law, most commonly he quotes from Deuteronomy. Certainly there's more to be said of the Pentateuch, but not in such a crash course fashion like this. This should be enough to make the other parts of the Bible begin to make more sense, like the Gospels and understanding what first-century Jewish Christians were wrestling with, like obedience to the words of these books versus grace. And dare I say, an understanding of the Old Testament, and especially the Pentateuch, lays the foundation for what Christ did in the Gospels and why it had to be done. In the introduction, I mentioned that I wanted to hit one thread that works its way through Scripture from the Pentateuch to the Gospels. As we work our way through the Old Testament, there are prophecies that become reality in Jesus. There are what they call types and shadows that become true in Jesus. There are illusions, not illusions, but things that allude to a coming Savior. And where the Apostle makes mention that Jesus was there in creation, see John 1 for that, 
these references or allusions or prophecies of him coming to die in our place for our sins begin as early as Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounces the curse upon the snake, on woman, on man. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a statement that most theologians refer to as the first messianic prophecy, where God says to the serpent, quote, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will bruise his heel. Here's a comment from David Guzik, quote, There is no doubt this is a prophecy of Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan. It was as if God could not wait to announce his plan of salvation, to bring deliverance through the one known as the seed of the woman, David Guzik. Shortly after the curse, you find one of the most overlooked and underappreciated verses in this story. First, remember a little commentary on the Pentateuch by the writer of Hebrews. Quote, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Adam and Eve have sinned, and most people see the curse as the end of that story, but may I submit that it was much deeper than that. Quickly after the curse comes verse 21, quote, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Adam and Eve had unsuccessfully tried to cover their shame with leaves. It is the curse of sin and shame to try to cover it up. People still do it to this day. They just use a lot of different things other than fig leaves to do so. But after calling out the sin and addressing it, God shows his love for mankind by clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins. Now, the text doesn't explicitly state this, but what animal donates his skin without shedding some blood? Along with the first sin came the first sacrifice. A sacrifice that would continue in various forms through the Pentateuch and the Passover lamb of Exodus. But it culminates in the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, and no longer is a sacrifice needed. It all started in Genesis 3.21, but look how the Apostle Paul wraps up this idea in Galatians 3.27. Quote, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes, end quote, out of the NLT. God clothed Adam and Eve to cover the shame of their sin, and in like fashion, Jesus Christ has clothed us. That's all for this week. Put on Christ like a brand new suit and get into the Word and gnaw on it. Next week, we'll race through the history books. And don't forget to look at this process like a bit of pre-trip planning, looking over the map so you don't get stuck in midtown Manhattan. Till then, God bless.